several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow Hey, it is time for your Grape Encounter of the Week and I am at a winery that, honestly, I've never been here before. I have consumed a tremendous, I mean, a tremendous amount of their wines. And I am so delighted to be here because it's just been a long time coming. You know, we've been talking this month about sustainability, and we're visiting a number of wineries in California because sustainability, I think, really got its roots in California. It has just taken off as a concept. And so we're doing a few more California wineries than we normally do, but I am at Cake Bread Cellars today, and I have the privilege to sit with Toby Halkovich, and you're the director of Vineyard operations, right? That's correct. And welcome to Cake Red Cellars. Like I said, it is a pleasure to be here. You know, I've probably been consuming Cake Red wines, I was going to say from the time I became an adult, but I should really say from the time that I can afford them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're not overly expensive, although you've got some very, very high-end wines. But on the other hand, what I love about this brand, it's one of those very few brands that you know wherever you go, even if you don't know that varietal, even if you don't know that year, you're going to like that wine. You know that the quality is going to be there. And that's something that I think this winery is so incredibly respected for. What goes on behind the scenes? Appreciate hearing that. You know, I think the big thing here is going to be consistency. Right. We have some phenomenal vineyard sites and we have a very consistent, pretty tight knit group that's growing the grapes, making the wine. We've all been here for a pretty long period of time. A lot of people will joke around that I've been here since 2004 and I'm still kind of the new guy. Our winemaker has been here for 30 years. Bruce Cakebread, who was a winemaker before her, has been here since the 70s. And then the only other winemaker we've ever had is Bruce's dad, Jack. And so since 1973, three winemakers, very consistent. And just going back, uh, Jack bought this on a whim, right? Yeah, Jack bought this. He was working as a photographer and they were doing a photo shoot for like a coffee table book. Uh, He came by. And he was working under none other than Ansel Adams, right? That's amazing. Yeah, he was Ansel Adams' apprentice for some time. How do you get a gig like that? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing story. And he was just up here doing a shoot, stopped by to visit some old family friends and ended up walking away with a ranch just and at the time it wasn't all grapes there was very few grapes in Napa Valley I think there was you know a couple dozen wineries or so it's really funny when you think about it because you know we tend to think of California as always having had great wine but that's because basically the generations that are alive today you know kind of don't think back past the 60s and 50s I mean we were growing grapes in California you know literally in the 1800s well even before that but as a commercial occupation it was really the 60s 
you know, that it just began to take off. So it really is a very young industry compared to other places. You go to Europe and it's like, you know, how many hundreds of years are we talking about, right? Yeah. Napa's come a long way in a very short period of time. And it's thanks to pioneers like Jack Kickbread and obviously many others. It's an exciting place to be. So I have so many stories to ask you. But first, going back to that apprenticeship uh, with Ansel Adams, I mean, I think there are very few people that wouldn't say that Ansel Adams is one of the two or three greatest American photographers that ever lived. And you just wonder how much of the attention to detail that he passed along to Jack went into the quality of the grapes that eventually were grown here and made into wines. Does anybody ever talk to that or make that correlation? You know, I think it's a great point because making wine takes a lot of artistic ability. It takes a tremendous amount of attention to detail, just like fine photography. And so I think that that's a great parallel. Yeah, yeah, a great parallel because it really is a lot of similarities between the two. Has nobody ever said that? Because I can sell that concept to you. (laughs) (laughs) I have not heard that, but it makes perfect sense. Well, haven't you noticed that people, you know, you obviously have, I'm sure, tons of winemaking friends. And I always just noticed that the best winemakers are the people, even if they didn't grow up in winemaking, they're all about the minutiae. You know, they came out of brain surgery or they did a job that was really super detail oriented. I notice a lot of winemakers that are actually coming out of the tech industry. You know, it's incredibly complex stuff that they're dealing with. And winemaking isn't something that you can do by the seat of your pants. A little bit, maybe, but... It does. It takes a strong science background, but it also takes a nice blend of uh, creativity. But I agree. It takes a good, strong technical background. It's funny, when you think of cake bread, I think of great pinots, great cabs, and great chardonnays. But you guys make a tremendous variety of wines. There's a lot on your menu. Yeah, we do. And we try to focus on the sites. And we look at the vineyards that we have. And sometimes we can grow a a great Merlot, fantastic Cab Franc that's going to go into our Cabernet. So we try to put a lot of emphasis on vineyard site and make sure that what we're growing is appropriate. Okay, now the hackles went up on my neck for a second because you said a great Cab Franc to put in your Cabernet. Cabernet. Yes, yeah. I know you listen to my show sometimes. Cab Franc to me is just this wine that we need to see more of it as a single varietal. It's just so delicious. We make such great Cab Franc here. Do you see that happening? I agree. A good Cab Franc can be very nice wine. You know, we use it as a component for our, our blends. Right, yeah. And it adds a lot to that. And then, so I don't want to take anything away from it as a varietal, but it can be pretty finicky as well. If it's not in the right spot, yeah. it can be a difficult wine to make. So your day-to-day, and we're going to get into talking a bit about, you know, nurturing the land and sustainability, but your day-to-day job would be what in managing those 500 plus acres? Yeah, so it's overseeing the 560 acres. We have four vineyard managers who do a great job, kind of boots on the ground type guys who really kind of keep things going. So I oversee those operations. And then I also oversee, we still have some outside contracts where we purchase some additional fruit. So we maintain those long-term relationships. We've had some growers that go back to to the 80s. So really feel that that's an important part of the job is making sure that our philosophy and our focus on quality is transferred to our growers. And so we're very particular about that. So as well. I know you guys are very well respected for your dedication to the environment, you know, not just in terms of growing grapes, but I know you were involved in some initiatives to take care of the Napa River. And that's been a big part of your, what would we call that commitment to the community and the local environment that goes beyond just growing grapes. A lot of commendations for the work that you do to maintain fishing reserves as well. 
And that's something that people don't think about is the relationship between wine and fishing. Can you talk about that for a second? And did I get that right, by the way? Is that how that... Well, we're very involved in fish-friendly farming, which yeah. is, it's a program that we've taken all of our properties through. And so we're 100% certified through this program. And basically what it does, it looks at what our farming operations do and what the impact those are on our local waterways, our rivers, our streams, our creeks. I'm a firm believer that the health of our creeks and our rivers are of good indication of the overall health of the habitat and the environment in our area. So we've gone through this process. We really want to make sure that we are having as small an impact on the surrounding environs as possible. It's a great program to measure that. And essentially what we do, it's a joint program through local, state, and federal regulators. They'll take a look at what we're doing and they'll make suggestions on how we can improve. One of the things that we're very proud of is that typically when we submit our farm plan, we tell them how we're approaching agriculture. They come back with very few or no suggestions on how we can improve. So what are they doing? Are they testing water? They're looking at the water that goes back into the waterways, both from irrigation and water, I would imagine, that percolates back down and all kinds of other things. Yeah, really what they're doing is they're reviewing every single practice yeah. that we're doing out there. How are we making tillage decisions? How are we making irrigation decisions? Uh, fertility, crop protection, all the way down to the way that our employees are being treated. Well, how does that relate exactly? <laughs> well, that's a good question. But you know, I think what it gets down to is we're looking at the overall sense of community and sense of stewardship that we have. And so I think that that transcends. A lot of ways, it's great when we look at the fish, we look at the rivers and the creeks, but the stewardship to me goes beyond that. It's what are we doing with the soil? What are we doing with our community? It's something that permeates all the way through this company. And it's something that permeates all the way through Cake Bread Cellars. It's very important. It's always a part of our company's mission, really. It's amazing that it seems like every couple of years, you look at farmers and not just in the wine industry, though, I have to think that the wine industry is about as conscientious as any agricultural industry could possibly be, but it seems like the industry on its own continues to find new ways that they can be even better custodians of the land. Is that the sense that you have as well, that there's just a real determination to do better and better and better voluntarily? Yeah, I think that what we found is that contrary to what a lot of people think, that there's this conflicting interest between good business practices and good environmental practices. What we're finding is we think the two ran hand in hand. We look at our vineyards as a very important very finite resource. They're not making more good vineyard ground. From a business perspective, we need to protect what we have and we need to make sure that it's viable. This ground can go south on you. It can. And repairing it can be next to impossible. Is that right? Yeah, I agree 100%. And you know, I'm a firm believer everything starts with the soil and that's usually the first thing to go. So we want to make sure that we're protecting that from a business perspective. But then also from a community perspective, everybody here, we live and we work in this community. Families are here and we want to see it, it flourish. This is a, it's not just a beautiful place to grow grapes. We think it's a beautiful place to live and we really want to protect Okay, so this raises a question that we'll get into, but we got to take a little break. And happy to be talking to Toby Halkovich, who is the Director of Vineyard Operations here at Cake Bread. And by the way, there's no cake involved in this. I know a lot of people think that might be the case. It's not. We'll talk about that, too, when we return with Grape Encounters Radio. This segment of Grape Encounters is brought to you by my number one wine discovery of 2016, the awesome gold medal winning wines of the Cardello Winery. From the very first sip, you'll understand why these astounding, nicely priced Cardello wines are swiftly becoming a cult classic, just as I predicted. Handcrafted and stunning, you can get yours at CardelloWinery.com. That's CardelloWinery.com. Or find more information at GrapeEncounters.com. Welcome back to Grape Encounters. 
where we like to think of every wine country as home. However, our studios are located in the very friendly town of Atascadero, California, where fine wine can be found in every direction, which means you never really need directions to get anywhere you really want to go. Here's David Wilson. And it has been long, long, long overdue, but finally I get to do a show from Cake Bread Cellars, and what a wonderful place to be at. I have loved these wines for such a long time. I'm just going to tell you right out, and they're not a sponsor of this show, so I'm saying this just because I'm saying it. If you see a bottle of Cake Bread on the shelf, and you're trying to make a winemaking decision, buy the Cake Bread buy it. You won't be sorry for that decision. The wines are absolutely consistent. If you haven't tried cake bread wines, definitely do. They've been around for like 40 years, I think now. Is that about right? Yeah, 1973. 44 years. Now, yeah, yeah, 44 years. That voice is uh, Toby Halkovich, who's the director of Vineyard Operations here. And you've been here like 13 years or 14 years? Exactly, or 13 years. 13 years. And where were you before this? I was doing some work on and consulting on soil health and some organic programs over in Sonoma Valley. Oh, okay. And before that, that is working at a winery over in Sonoma Valley. So you were a dirt guy before this too. Yeah, I grew up in the area. I grew up in the town of Sonoma. It's always been in my blood, I guess you could say. All right, so take me into or behind the scenes, I should say, of your job as director of vineyard operations. How many acres does Cake Bread now have, first of all? We have about 560 acres. That's a bunch. It's a good amount. About 410 of that is down here in Napa Valley. And then we have 100 acres up in Anderson Valley of Mendocino. One of the most beautiful places on earth. It's a fantastic spot. Yeah, awesome. I we say when you go up there, you got to kind of set your clock back 20 years. Is that Pinot up there? It's entirely Pinot. That's where we grow yeah. the vast majority of our Pinot Noir. So one of the really great Pinot regions in California, I think. Yeah, it really is. And it's an area we've put our focus with Pinot Noir and we've had some tremendous success up there. How fun has it been to watch this valley or, well, I say this valley, but Napa and Sonoma just become, you know, two of the most important regions in the world where wine is concerned? You know, it's been a great experience. I think one of the wonderful things about both Kickbread Cellars and I think Napa Valley in general is that there's this constant desire for continual improvement and to continue to grow both as a winery, but then also as a region. You know, I think that it's a spirit that still thrives. Does it seem to you that we're in a period right now where there's a real burst of energy where that's concerned. You know, places that are, well, I was going to say all regions, no matter what it is that they're known for, you know, have their high times and their low times or peaks and valleys. Is this a peak time for Napa? I like to think it's all peak times here, but, you know, I'm not sure if I'd call it a peak time, but it's certainly, there's a lot of energy in the valley right now. There's a lot of enthusiasm. and It just seems like the energy is really super good here right now. I always look at it, it's a great place to be from working in the wine industry and then also just from a personal perspective. All right, so I'm going to ask you a question you're not going to like. I'm still asking it, okay? (laughs) You know, for the person who walks into a big box store or someplace that sells wines from, you know, all over the country and the consumer sees a bottle of wine or maybe several bottles of wine from Napa, but they're $15 and they've got that Napa AVA on them. And there's a tendency to think initially that's going to be a great wine. But it isn't necessarily so. And there's a lot of wine that does wind up out in circulation that says Napa that is not going to measure up to a cake bread. What are your thoughts on that? And how do we navigate around those? And for those who may not understand, why does that even happen? Yeah, you know, that is a tough question. And it is... Uh, you don't like that question, do you? No. no, but it's a valid question. And I think that, you know, to make a great wine, a lot has to go into it. A lot of care, a lot of attention to detail. You have to have the right soil. You have to have the right process. You have to have the right people. And you just really have to have the right 
approach. And all of that is going to take some form of resources. And so I think that to have a great wine, you have to differentiate yourself. You know, in terms of how that makes me feel, I think that the people who came before us here in Napa, Jack Cakebread, you know, and the others, did a fantastic job of paying attention to that detail and in creating this sense of place with the wines. And so I do get concerned that when you see people who don't have that same respect for Napa and the same respect for their product, that it does have a negative impact. Do you ever think about, you know, in some other countries, there's actually some thorough evaluation of the quality of grapes that goes on from, for lack of a better term, regulatory agencies in those countries, you know, Germany for one, you know, does this. Is there room for something like that in American winemaking? Would that be a good thing to you know, somehow differentiate the people who are, and this comes back to the sustainability question, you know, you're probably going to find better wines at wineries that are practicing what you're practicing. And I'm just wondering if we should be making a bigger deal out of that or find a way to get that communicated to the wine consumer. You know, I think it is a point that it would be valuable to communicate. And I think it would be nice to communicate because I agree with you 100%. I think what you're going to find is the wineries that are focusing on sustainability, particularly the fine details of sustainability, are also going to be focusing on both progressive grape growing and a strong sense of stewardship. I always like to say that the best fertilizer is the farmer's shadow. And I think that as you (laughs) get out in the field and you become more in touch with your impact on the surrounding environment and your community, it forces you to become more aware of what you're doing with the grapevines and your cultivation and your irrigation patterns. And so it's just that level of detail that we were talking about earlier that really permeates through the whole process. So give me five things that you do here at Cake Bread that would set it apart from, you know, your everyday average winery. There are plenty of wineries out there that are doing awesome things like you're doing, but what are some of the things that you think that you do that would distinguish this company and the wines from, you know, everyday wines? Yeah, you know, I think the first thing I would think of would be soil conservation. And I'm going to take up two things with that. Okay, it's okay. The first one is going to be with our fertility program. One of the things we really want to focus on is not jumping and reacting and treating symptoms. For me, when we start to see plant nutrition or plant health issues, it's not to just jump and throw a lot of fertilizer on there because that's going to have negative impacts both on... So miracle Grow's not going to just fix it? Yeah, yeah, it would be nice if we just had a kind of one-stop fix-it-all with a fertilizer. One, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, it's really... Uh, often what we see is that if you see a problem with one nutrient, it's not necessarily that one. It's something that's out of balance with another nutrient, so calcium, magnesium. And is it a case where when you adjust one thing... You send something else potentially out of whack? That's exactly right. If you just go out and you mend with one type of nutrient, you're going to disrupt the ratios and, and create a deficiency with another. And so we really try to take a systemic approach to fertility. And you also potentially run the risk of, you know, ruining the production of a particular block of grapes for potentially years, right? Yeah, and that's a very good point, is either through over-nitrification or some fertilizer products or phosphoric acid base. You can change the pH in the soil. So you could really, really have negative impacts. And so we've really drawn back when it comes to fertility. And what we're finding is a lot of the time just through promoting good soil health, composting, responsible tillage, so not over tilling our vines, what we're finding is we're taking these soils that maybe 
we're showing some sort of a deficiency symptom. We're really bringing them back without adding anything. All right. Well, there's still more to talk about on this. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll continue that just a little bit because you're making some really interesting points and some things I definitely haven't uh, thought about before. We are at Cake Bread Cellars talking to Toby Halkovich, who's the director of vineyard operations here. A wonderful place. If you do come to the Napa Valley, make sure that Cake Bread is on your list of things to do. You won't be disappointed when you do that. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue right after these important messages. In the immortal words of our host, David Wilson, show me a pretentious wine drinker and I'll show you his new Tesla and the date he's hoping to impress. Welcome to the world's most down-to-earth wine show, Grape Encounters. Here's your host, David Wilson. We're back with Grape Encounters Radio and just spending a little quality time with the Director of Vineyard Operations. It is Toby Halkovich. Been here for 13 years, Toby. That's correct. And you got a dream job here because you're attached to one of the really great labels in the Napa Valley. Yeah, it really is a dream job. Like going to work. It's tough to call it work because when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. We were talking a few minutes ago about when the soil does take a turn for the worse. Let's talk variety varietals for a second and which varietals that we know popular varietals are the ones that are going to have the fiercest reaction to soil that is not in the best of conditions are there some that are worse than others are there some varietals that we can just put in the ground and they're going to do pretty well no matter what and others that it's like you better know exactly what you're doing yeah there is going to be a difference primarily because of where we're going to plant those varietals so i look at pinot noir and cabernet sauvignon you're going to plant these in areas that are going to be fairly restrictive soils to begin with, particularly Cabernet. You want well-drained soils so that you can stress the vine to a certain degree. And so because you're going to be in these unforgiving soil sites to begin with, that any change in those soil conditions is going to really amplify your problems. So Cabernet, for sure. Pinot is one of the most finicky grapes out there. It is, yeah. And so soil is a huge factor with Pinot as well, I take it? Yeah, absolutely. Pinot is very particular to soil that it's planted on. We are going to look for more well-drained soil for Pinot than we would with, say, a Chardonnay. To begin with, those are their limiting soils. What's the most forgiving grape? They've all got their little things that they get kind of upset about, but uh, I'd say Sauvignon Blanc is probably the Sauvignon most Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. Yeah. It's also one of those wines that when you buy it in a store that you won't have as many bad Sauvignon Blancs to good Sauvignon Blancs ratio-wise as you do with other wines. It's like, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, probably going to be able to find one you enjoy versus, you know, certain varietals. And this is why I always malign Pinot is that there's so much bad Pinot out there. You know, it's like if you're doing it blind, that's probably a bad idea. Yeah, I agree. If you get Pinot Noir in the wrong place, you're not going to be able to produce it. Don't get it in a bad mood. That's right. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. You're going to be very unhappy about that. Okay. So going back to sustainability, I think it's so interesting that we've come to a place, it seems, where, you know, and let me back up for a second. When I go into the grocery store and I, I go in, I'm looking for something to drink a juice and it says 
7% real juice. You know, it's so disgusting where we have come as a culture when it seems like, gosh, wouldn't it just be easier to put 100% juice in there and call it a day? But instead, we got a bunch of people that are sitting around playing with chemistry, trying to recreate something that nature does very well on its own. That, I think, really found its way, did it not, into the wine industry, that same thinking? And is that why we have things like mega purple? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that when it comes to, to nature, I, I'm a firm believer that it's much easier to work with Mother Nature than to try to work against her. And so uh, that never works well. Why do you think that happens, though? You know, I think that there is, oftentimes there is this quest to do things better living through better science sometimes. And, and yeah. while I don't want to negate or reduce the role that science plays in grape growing and winemaking because it, it plays a tremendous role and there's a lot of new technologies that we're, we're utilizing that are greatly beneficial, but there's a limit to really where it should be applied. Yeah. You know, I'm a big believer that everything is, particularly with grape growing and winemaking, that you have to strike this right balance between the science and the art. And if you get too heavily into the science side, it's going to diminish that art side and you're going to end up with this kind of singular, you know, homogeneous product really ultimately is less desirable. Well, I think, you know, going even further beyond that, sometimes seems to me that when we create products that, you know, we start with whatever the main ingredient is going to be and we say, all right, well, let's just see, you know, what we can come up with from this vineyard. And then when we're done, we'll just doctor it. Or, you know, if the vineyard's not doing well, we'll doctor it. You know, we'll apply some short-term fix on it that could be a long-term problem. And I think consumers are completely unaware, for the most part, of how many ingredients a winemaker can put in a wine and still call it a Cabernet or a Pinot or a Chardonnay or whatever. And it's a crying shame when if you just focused on that piece of property and the quality of the vines that are planted there and, you know, do everything right from the start, you don't have to apply all of these band-aids. Yeah, I agree. I think that the great wines are going to be the ones that allow the vineyard to express itself. Now, obviously, that takes good winemaking to do that. Uh, You can't just pick grapes and let them ferment and think that you're going to have a great wine just because it's a great site. So it's a two-phase process, but I think when it's done right, it doesn't mask the vineyard, rather. It, it promotes it and it brings it brings it out. I sometimes wonder whether vineyards want to produce good fruit in the sense that we think of good fruit. And I say that only because when you think about, for instance, a grape like Malbec that, you know, in France would grow incredibly leafy but not get too much ripened fruit, but the plant seemed very happy. But then you take it to South America and you get this delicious, unctuous fruit, and but in a very harsh environment. And so sometimes when we talk about letting the plants and the land speak for themselves, I sometimes wonder what the plant really wants to be. Now, how is that for a weird question? Well, no, and I think it's a strong relationship between the two that's going to create the wine. Because I agree with you, certain varietals, certain plants put in two different sites are going to create two different wines. That's really what becomes important in the process is making making sure that you have the correct varietal, the correct grapes on the correct site. And if you don't get that right, you're starting off kind of a step behind and you, you've got a big problem. And so it, it really is. It's identifying those sites, identifying what should be grown there. And then so you have to start. All right. So let's talk about finally for the person who is looking for wines that are made in a conscientious manner where sustainable practices are very important. How can they vet out those wines? How do you vet out wines like yours? 
stores to make sure that you're going after products that are really where the tending of the land has been a very, very high priority. Yeah, that can be very difficult. You know, one of the phrases that you hear around is greenwashing and people will... Oh, yes. Talk about that for a second, by the way, because that's such a great term and such a bad practice. Yeah, I think a lot of people will overstate their sustainability process and how sustainable they are for the sole purpose of marketing. And I think where things can get very difficult is sometimes the practicers of sustainability, the ones who are truly are beholden to that philosophy, aren't going to get out and shout from the highest mountain that they're doing it. And and so it can be very difficult to find that. I think oftentimes a great place to start is you go to the, the website because I think you'll pick it up very quickly. Those wineries that hold stewardship and sustainability and community. And, and there are a variety of programs out there. They're different in some ways. And I would say that in one way or another, they're all good. I can't say they're all good, but they're all certainly better than what the alternative would be. But there's you know a program called SIP certification program. There's the program through the Wine Institute and others. But certainly if a winery is claiming to be practicing sustainable grape growing practices, you know, look at exactly what they're doing, right? Isn't that the main thing? I mean, they're, yeah. they're going to probably describe what they're doing to be, quote, sustainable. Yeah, oftentimes they will. And I think you brought up a good point in terms of you look at certification, whether it's through California Sustainable Wine Growing or the other organizations, will give you a good place to start because you know that those wineries or those grape growers at least are placing a priority on that. And then again, yeah, if you can drill down further and see this, go to their websites and see the sort of things they're doing, that's just going to give you even more confidence. There's a list on the Wine Institute's website and they list virtually all of the participants in the program. And so that's a really good place to start because it's not a list that is so huge that you can't manage it, but it would be good to get to know those names because then when you do see those wines at a retailer, you know that you've got a very conscientious winery. They're investing a lot, right? Yeah, in, it's in, not in doing an easy this. process. No, it's tough. There's like, I don't know how many different things on the checklist that they have to accomplish, but it's like way over a hundred. Oh yeah, it's a fairly extensive process to get that certification. And I think that's a great place to start. To get through that certification and that process, it takes tenacity and it takes, takes a sense of purpose. Okay, so takeaway from today's show is this, I think, let me know, Toby, if you agree. No matter where you are, if you're looking at making wine purchases, it probably would be a good idea to just Google sustainable wine growing practices or sustainability and grapes or whatever. And you'll start to see the wineries that are investing in producing quality products. You're going to see it right off the bat. And these are probably wineries that are more often than not also doing everything they can to make great wines. And it doesn't matter whether it's California or New York or Missouri or Washington or Oregon. You know, there's great wines being grown all over this country, but make this a priority, I think, right? Isn't that the best idea? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. It's a great place to start because it takes the same attention to detail to truly practice sustainable and a high level of stewardship as it does to make great wine. All right. So I'm going to apply for the job of being poster child for Napa Valley Sustainability. I'll have a little uh, sash that I'll be wearing out at the beginning of Highway 29, right? Yeah, we may have that sash. You got that sash? (laughs) Many thanks to you, Toby, for being on. Well, thank you for coming to Cake Bread Sellers. What a pleasure to come to Cake Bread Sellers. All right, we're going to be back in just a second with more Grape Encounters, and it'll be Sipping with Sarah, Sarah Schneider, wine editor of Sunset Magazine, when we return with Grape Encounters. Bye-bye. So, just what is a Grape Encounter? It's when wine is the catalyst of a really great time. 
Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue in just a moment. We like to talk about wine. They say wine is a truth serum, which is why you'll never hear any fake news on Grape Encounters Radio. Here's David. Back with Grape Encounters Radio, and now joining us in the studio is the never-corked Sarah Schneider, the wine editor of Sunset Magazine. When they say you're corked, I think that would imply that you've had too much wine to drink, perhaps. Nobody's ever said that about me. Well, no, they never have, because nobody holds their wine like you do, Sarah. Have you ever had a buzz? When I was younger. I don't ever get buzzed now. I just know when to stop. I'm not sure if it's a blessing or a curse, but we gear up for these things. I do, and I know when to stop. It's when my eyes close. That's when I stop. (laughs) No, there's a term in the industry that I think if you're a wine person, you know the term. It's called corked. And if you're not a wine person, you chances are you've probably heard it. But it's an important term, and I don't think we've ever talked about on Grape Encounters. And I thought you'd like to jump in on a discussion of corked wine. I would love to. I actually run into it now and then. Now and then, and you will run into it in your life. It's kind of like getting a straight flush, you know, except it's not a good thing, typically, (laughs) where a straight flush is a good thing. But you will hear people say, oh, this wine is corked. And I know that from experience, a lot of people who hear that term will go, what does that mean? Right. It can't be good. Although it sounds like there's a cork in it. Yeah, that's um, and true. And that is, all that's wine true. is pretty much corked. But when a wine is corked, it's not a good thing, but it also isn't necessarily a horrible thing. No, but it is a very specific thing, and everybody can actually know what it is. Okay. And react I'm going to let you jump in. So you open up a wine, and I've seen this at competitions. I've seen this in our own wine shop. I've seen this many times. And somebody who knows wine, the minute that cork comes out of the bottle, they go, this bottle is corked. Right. And it's interesting because the smell does kind of smell like wet cork to me, in a way. It does. Or wet dog, perhaps. You know what? It's almost that wet newspaper at the bottom of the cellar stairs sort of a thing. Do you have wet newspapers at the bottom of your cellar stairs? I try not to because the smell is so bad. (laughs) No, I do not. Well, I have a basement that has Uh, plenty of wine racks in it. So do you sometimes put wet newspapers down there just to... to Why are your newspapers wet at the bottom of your (laughs) stairs? Everything's wet You always kill me with your metaphors, you know. Know, like it tastes like a dusty old trunk. Your dog one was pretty good too. All right. And accurate because it's not just a musty, like an old library, good sort of a smell. It's musty, like you want to get away from it, sort of a smell. That is corked. That is the taint that has grown because of that cork. Okay, so let's talk more specifically about the taint. And it's a little bug. It's trichloroanisole. Trichloroanisole, TCA. Yeah. TCA. And it's not going to kill you. It's not going to hurt you. It won't hurt anybody. In fact, I've actually seen people who actually like that taste and smell. It happens. And for the most part, most people don't know that they're even experiencing it. They're just going to just pass on it. It is a flaw and is something that has grown because of the natural cork that encourages this compound to grow. And there have been times when it's been particularly bad because people didn't know what was causing it. And so they were actually cleaning corks in a way that encouraged it more. And so a larger percentage of bottles were corked, even up to 8 to 10% sometimes. And you think about it, what 
luxury product, producers of luxury product would allow that much of damage. You know, okay, one out of 10 BMWs, that's okay, we'll let that go. You know, it's really kind of a severe problem. So I wonder, though, sometimes whether or not we're just being too prissy here. And, and here's why I say that. When I go to places like Europe and you walk into, let's say, an old 800-year-old church and it's got a smell to it that is just unmistakable. It's this old smell. It's history. And it's, to me, a really good smell. <laughs> but it's not really a clean smell. I hear you. Okay. So in a way, when I smell corked wine, it kind of is reminiscent of that. And I don't go, oh my gosh, that's foul. Because it's not a foul odor, I wouldn't say. I think people react to it in different ways. It depends on how Do you, you... think it's foul? I do. I do okay. think it's foul. But to your point, I agree with you about we're used to a lot of cleanness. We're clean here. freaks. We're clean freaks. Let's face it. Compared to old Europe. We sell and, a lot more yeah. deodorant in America, right? <laughs> we, we probably do. Yeah. But there are other things that grow in those old European cellars that I think are actually more appealing, even though they're still considered flaws. Mushrooms. And it's dirty. I'm thinking of Britannomyces, another thing that can grow in your wine. Okay, so there's another great term that some people have heard. I don't know if it's most people, but many people have heard. And there's a real strong debate in the wine industry whether is. it's a good yeah. thing or a bad thing. And they call it Brett, for so sure. So take it on. No, I so it is controversial, way more than corked wine, I think, because a lot of those old winemakers in Europe have it growing in their cellars, and it's in their wine, and they've come to like it. A little Brett in old world wine, even though officially it's a flaw, it's more appealing than not to a lot of tasters in yeah, Europe. Yeah, who's to say what's good or bad? Yeah, that's a good point. But corked wine, I think, you know, it's nice to get that information out there because if you're right, if you can identify a corked wine at a party, people are going to be really impressed by you. <laughs> it's yeah, true. They're going to really think that and you're, it is, you're a somebody. And it is a reason that you can send a wine back in a restaurant. If you say, I'm sorry, this is a corked wine, they will come over and taste it and say, absolutely. Okay, we got 45 seconds. So take us through really quickly. The waiter brings the bottle over, opens the bottle and sets it down or, or pours it into your glass. And what happens next? Basically, how do you know it's corked? Well, that is one of the main reasons they pour you that little pour, whoever ordered that bottle. Oh, that's and why they the, do that. You sniff it. And if you smell that wet dog, there are other reasons the wine could be off. It could be oxidized, too much air, hot transport, that sort of thing. But corked wine is one of the main reasons they do that. And it's not for you to say, I'm sorry, I don't like this wine. It's for you to say whether it's sound or not. And if it's corked, it's not officially sound. That is such a good subject, by the way, talking about why they pour you that little dribble <laughs> yeah. and who they pour it to right. as well, too, no, because that's, really, that's getting to be a really, really messy situation now <laughs> yeah. in restaurants. I see a lot of waiters actually pour for more than one person that little taste. Because they're just not sure. Probably a really good idea, because she's wearing the pants in the family over there, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Pour it for Mrs. Fine. I'll take the pour anyway. My wife gets the pour. Okay. <laughs> anyway, hey, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters today and Sipping with Sarah. Well, actually, we're going to do a little sipping of uncorked wine. Very clean wine. Uncorked, here. by the way, just means that we're ready for action. <laughs> 
Okay, we've pulled the cork and we're ready to go. That works for me. Even if it's a tough topic, it's fun to talk to you. All right, we will be back here at the very same time at this very awesome radio station, and we'll see you then. Honestly, we won't see you then because we're on the radio, so we can't actually see you. Well, actually, we can see you. We're looking at you through your microwave, but that's a completely different story. We'll see you then. This week's Grape Encounters is down to the last drop. Don't let that trouble you. We're headed down to the wine cellar in search of something remarkably special to share with you next week. Until then, we've got hundreds upon hundreds of past episodes ready to be uncorked at GrapeEncounters.com. Help yourself to anything you'd like. <laughs>